Good morning. I want to say something here as we, uh, as we get started. Um, just want you to know that we have, uh, we have a great team of people who volunteer to do our audio and visual stuff on a week-in, week-out basis, and uh, they do a wonderful job. Sometimes the gremlins get in the system and things happen. That's just kind of the way it, it, it works around here. Uh, but I want you to know how appreciative we are of all the, the hard work and effort of people who volunteer to help us in this kind of ministry so that we can gather here and worship and enjoy this, this time uh, together. And, you know, when things don't go right, it's, here's what I'll remember on a day like today. I'll, I'll just be reminded that um, despite our best efforts, we're always in need of grace, right? That, that's, that's kind of why we gather. <laughs> and if we can't remember that in a, in a place like this, at a time like this, then, you know, I don't know that we're really listening because that's that's kind of the that's kind of the idea and that's the good news. So, um, yeah, we are in the middle of this of this series where we're talking about discipleship. Joe kind of set this up in the beginning for us, and so just a real quick review, kind of where we've been the first couple of weeks, then we'll dive in. Uh, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and we kind of defined it uh, this way: that a disciple is someone who knows Jesus, someone who trusts Jesus. And someone who follows Jesus. That was kind of our idea in week one. And that's, that's where we really spent our time and, and, and kind of camped out there in, in Luke chapter 5 and looked at that. And then, then last week we added to that these three words as we try to think about a little more fully. Okay, what, what do we mean by that, that word disciple? What does the New Testament mean? And so we said a disciple, discipleship can kind of be summarized by these three principles and you see them kind of hanging here behind me the, the one kind of dead center reminds us that discipleship is a life that is centered on Jesus as Lord that was one of those principles we talked about last week uh, we also said discipleship is a life of being changed we're being changed to think and act like Jesus and you see this throughout the gospels as well and then the last one the third of those principles discipleship is being committed to the mission of Jesus and so when we see disciples we see these things happening. They're, they know Jesus, and they trust Jesus, and they follow Jesus. But then we tighten that up a little bit. Their lives are centered on Jesus. They're being changed by Jesus, and they're committed to the things that Jesus is committed to. So that's kind of just a real quick summary of where we've been. Now today, here's what I'd like for us to do in, in the time that we have remaining. I'd love for us to spend some time thinking about, about this. We want to fill in the blank. So what would you say? The, the goal of discipleship is uh, blank. I want you to kind of chew on that. And over the next few minutes, here's what I want to do. I want us to, to build an answer to this. And I want to show you 13 passages in the Bible that help us to answer the question, to fill in the blank. What is discipleship? Okay, so 13 verses, what I'd like for you to do. Uh, I don't know if you normally take notes or not. But this would be a great sermon. It would help me if I just knew that during this, this time you were just jotting down these references because we're going to go through them kind of quickly. And if you could read through some of the context around that and see if we're tracking together maybe a little bit later on you know, today or a little later on this week, that would be really helpful to me. I know what you're also thinking too. Like anytime a preacher says, hey, I have 13 verse, I have 13 points for you today. Right? You're kind of thinking, do we have time for that? I didn't bring a lunch, you know? Like, are we? I, I promise you, we're going to go through it quickly, but that's why I need you to kind of take down some notes and just, just jot these, these 13 down as we try to build an answer to this question based on what the scriptures say, okay? So, what is the goal of discipleship? Here's where we start. We start at the beginning. Genesis 1, 27. It says, so God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. 
So we start with this, this affirmation at the very beginning, page one of our Bibles, that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. And that means a lot of things. It means that humanity is, is kind of special among all of God's created things. It means that we have this rational ability. We're able to think just like God has, has a mind that's on display throughout creation. We, too, are rational creatures. We're relational creatures. We can talk to one another. We can relate to one another. We can talk about things. We have the gift of language. Most of all, it means that we can love, okay, and be loved in return because God is love. So we see this uh, at the very beginning of the biblical story. But pretty quickly, pretty quickly, that image that we bear, it is corrupted. Pretty quickly, that image... Uh, is tarnished a little bit, and that's where we go to this, the second passage, okay? So number one is Genesis 1, 20, 26 and 27. Number two, Genesis 3 tells us this, that the eyes of both, uh, Adam and Eve, that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked after they sinned. They, they sewed fig leaves together, it says, and they made themselves loincloths. This is, this is the great breach in the biblical story. Adam and Eve, they eat of the forbidden fruit, okay? So they're disobedient. To use the biblical term, we would say that they, they are living in sin. They, to sin, according to the biblical story, it is to miss the mark. So here's the idea. God sets his standards here. He says to his people, uh, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. It's a really high standard. It's a great summary of kind of the, the commands of God. Okay? He gives those commands so that his people who bear his image will live like him, will look like him, will have his qualities and his characteristics alive within them. So he sets the standard here, but in Genesis 3 and throughout our lives, we see, like, man, we missed the mark. God says live this way. He says live obediently. But, mm, boy, we just kind of fall really short of that. We miss that mark. And so, so sin is understanding this deficit between God's standard and God's expectation and where we kind of fall out. Okay, maybe I was... I was obedient here and here and here, but boy, I really missed the mark here. And so we see Adam and Eve, they, they, they violate the command, they're disobedient, they're sinful. And so what happens is they kind of go to their corners, they run and hide, and they kind of cover up because sin always does that. Sin always wants you to go running and hiding, it wants you to, to be separated, sin isolates, and sin gets us to kind of cover up. And so we see this. Not just in Adam and Eve, we see this in our own stories as well. So, that's why the biblical story is not just a story of these two people in the garden. It's a universal story because we understand what that's like in our own lives as well. So that's the bad news, and that happens on like page two in your Bible, all right? But here's the good news of the story of God. Here's the good news of the scriptures. Um, throughout the rest of the biblical story, we see God doing this. In Jesus... He's restoring back that image of God. In Jesus, he's putting the pieces back together. He's fixing what was broken. He's helping make up that deficit between his standards and our reality. That's where the good news of the gospel comes in, okay? So Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, he begins that work of creating anew. And that's where we jump to the New Testament. And so the third passage I want us to just consider, if you'll jot this one down, it comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the midst of what Paul says about the ministry of reconciliation and how God through Jesus was reconciling all things back to himself. Therefore, he says, we now share in that ministry of reconciliation because, in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He or she has become someone entirely new. The old is gone and the new has now come and taken its place. And so Paul says here that the mission of Jesus is to create anew. 
He is the one who makes all things new, as it says there in Revelation chapter 21. So when we're in Christ, Paul says, we become a new creation. That's Paul's favorite phrase. You'll find him saying that more than anything else throughout all of his writings. To be in Christ is where where Paul is really focusing. He wants you and me and the Galatians and the Ephesians and everybody he talks to, Philippian jailers, you know, everybody that he's talking to, he wants them to be in Christ because that's where we experience the renewing power of God that is alive through Jesus who creates something new. Uh, Every time you see the word create, every time that word comes up in the scriptures, this is kind of interesting, God is always the subject of that verb. In the biblical world, in the biblical story, you and I don't create things. That's, That's like the domain of God. He's the one who creates in the biblical picture that's painted for us there. And so we see that happening here as well. We see the gracious initiative of Jesus to act to create something new in you and in me. And so this happens when, like we discussed last week, our lives are centered on Jesus. That's another way for us to think about what Paul says about being in Christ. Another way we might put that is this occurs when we become his disciples. And this is where Luke comes in. This is the passage we talked about last week. We're just going to kind of touch on Luke's gospel this week. We'll dive back into it more fully next week. But here's the fourth passage that kind of paints this picture, and these are the words of Jesus now. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus says, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Again, according to Jesus, we are changed through our relationship to him. We're changed to think and act like Jesus the more time we spend with him. We become someone new through our discipleship to Jesus, okay? So we're being changed to think and act like Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this particular passage of Scripture. He assumes that role of teacher, and and we assume that role of student here. And so when Jesus calls his students together in his classroom, it's about way more than just like knowing something. He's not simply interested in the imparting of knowledge. He certainly does that, and that is hugely important for us as we think about discipleship. But Jesus doesn't say, Every disciple, when he's fully trained, he will know the things that the teacher knows. No, he's pointing more toward this holistic kind of life on life. He says you will be like the teacher when you are fully trained, he says. I think another helpful way to think about discipleship is to think about it in terms of apprenticeship. Sometimes you hear that that term being used. We are apprentices to Jesus. We are disciples. Of course, disciples is the term you find in the New Testament, but another way just to kind of think about that, an apprentice. What does an apprentice do? Well, she, she watches the master to try and acquire the same kinds of skills that the master has so she can go someday and, and do likewise. And so that's what Jesus is getting at here, too. This is the, the idea is kind of built into the New Testament understanding of discipleship. And now here's the thing. Each of the predominant voices in the New Testament, every one of them testified to this same idea. So what Jesus says here, you're going to find every you know, dominant voice in the New Testament, you're going to find them repeating the same kind of idea. Here's how, here's how the uh, Apostle Paul says it, okay? In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19, write this one down, all right? He's talking to these believers and he says, okay, my little children for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until this happens, until Christ is formed in you. 
So Paul's talking with these believers, and if you read the context there, he's basically saying that he longs to be with them. And in the process, he kind of reveals his, his pastoral heart, okay? So Paul's ministry is not just preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, although that's certainly what he does. But it's more than that. Once someone responds to Jesus, here's Paul's thing. He is all about trying to form them, whether they're Jew or Gentile or whatever. He wants to form something in them. And he says to these believers, he's like, I am in the pain of childbirth until something is born in you. Ladies, do you like it when a man talks about the pain of childbirth like he's been there before? How does that hit you, you know? I'm going to try that the next time Sonny asks me to like move furniture around for her. I'm going to say... Honey, I am in anguish. I'm in the pain of childbirth moving this sofa around. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's comparable. You know, I've been there before. Right? <laughs> Ladies, you might have to kind of forgive Paul, but like this is inspired though. So guys, if you ever want to compare something to childbirth with your wife, whatever, it's biblical. I mean, you know, Paul does it, right? Um, so we kind of have to kind of give him a pass, all right? But he, here's what he's saying though. He's saying like, I'm in labor for you all until something is formed in you. And what is that something? He says it's Jesus. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm like struggling for you, my, my spiritual children. I'm struggling for you here until this happens, until Christ is formed in you. Paul understands that the Christian walk as a, a, a journey of transformation. Again, we're being, we're being changed through our proximity to Jesus. So that's one way that Simon Peter says it, or excuse me, uh, the Apostle Paul says it. Here's how Simon Peter says it, okay? This is the sixth passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, 3 and 4, okay? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's the key phrase that I want us to focus on here partakers of the divine nature so that we can escape the, the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Look how the, Simon Peter draws this line, okay? He draws a line from God's power, which he says is leveraged to give us life, okay? And God's power leads to God's promises. They're great and very precious promises, he says. And all that allows us to partake of the divine nature so that we can overcome sin, so that we can Take on the, the qualities of God, the divine nature, his characteristics, his essence, his way of thinking. All of this, Simon Peter says, is, is formed in us. We take on, he says, the very nature of God. I, this is one of those passages that you read and reread. And for me, the, the power and the, the import of this, it, I don't know that it's fully sunk in. That you and I can be partakers of the divine nature, not the sinful nature that we so often indulge in, but instead a divine nature that gets us back to this idea of being made in the image of God in the first place. Simon Peter is essentially saying the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 4, and Jesus says over in Luke chapter 6, God's power and his promises are leveraged to make us look more like Jesus. This is how the Apostle John says it. Number seven, 1 John 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, listen to this, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
God seems to be saying that our transformation isn't complete. You know, we're not fully changed. God's, God's work of changing it, it reaches its completion in the end. Okay, when we finally see the Lord, you know, face to face, okay? But that transformation, according to the New Testament, it, it also begins now, just as surely as it's completed in eternity. It starts right now. And notice the way John says it. When he appears, we'll be like him. When Jesus shows up, when we see him face to face, we'll be like him. All those things that have kind of been in the way that, that, that continually detract from, from me looking like Jesus the way that God wants me to, someday th those things lose. The, the principalities and the powers that are, that are somehow governing things, they, like they lose when they come face to face with Jesus. Those things that are in me that are sinful, those things just dry up and die on the vine when I see Jesus because I become like him. So, what do we do in the meantime? We just sit around and wait for that day to happen. That's not what the New Testament says, okay? The eighth passage, Romans chapter 12. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Right now. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then do not be conformed, he says, to this world, to the pattern of things here, Okay? But be transformed, present tense, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that good and acceptable and perfect thing. Paul's teaching here is present tense. He says, be transformed now. We don't have to wait until the appearing of Jesus to experience transformation. No, the, the transformation that we experience as a part of discipleship, it occurs now. Again, we're changed to think and act like Jesus. And you notice this, this connection Paul makes here between worship and ethics. Worship is the most formative thing that we do. Everybody, every human being on the planet looks for something to worship. I don't care how spiritual or how you know, non-spiritual, we're all looking for something to worship because to, the very word itself, worship, it just means to ascribe worth to everybody every human being is looking for something that will give meaning and purpose to their lives they're looking for something that they can say okay my life has meaning because of that my life is worth something because of that now oftentimes we we find the wrong kinds of things you know it's like money or you know pleasure or you know power or, or something else some sort of trivial thing or some other relationship you know but but at the end of the day we we're looking for something that grounds our meaning and our, our purpose and significance because we're created with this desire to worship something. And what you worship impacts who you are. You always become like that which you worship. And so that's why throughout the scriptures, God's saying, no, 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 you, you've got to guard your heart. You've got to guard that, that place of allegiance and loyalty because if I want you to worship me, not because God's like greedy and needy and got to have your worship to have some sort of value. No, no, he wants what's best for you. He wants you to experience real life. And so he knows all these other things that we worship are like sham gods. They don't lead to real everlasting life. Only the eternal living God can create eternal life within us because you become that which you worship. And so Paul says we engage in this whole life kind of worship here because it transforms us. And specifically, he says there's this mind renewal. There's this transformation of the mind that takes place. The mind of Christ, Paul seems to be saying. 
can be formed in you and me through our time of worship. Not only that, through our whole life kind of worship that's presented to God. And then he goes on to say this in our ninth verse that we're looking at here today in Philippians chapter 2. A little more succinct. He's talking about that mind again. So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now you've got to go on and read the rest of what he says because he really unpacks in the, in the next few verses what the mind of Christ really looks like. But, but unfortunately, you know, some translations use the word attitude here. Your attitude should be the same as that, as that of Christ Jesus, which, which is okay, but it's just it's not exactly what Paul is getting at. And attitude is kind of like an inner disposition, you know. It's like as long as I kind of keep things in check here on the inside, if I have the right kind of attitude, it doesn't really matter how I live out here, how I treat you, whatever, as long as I kind of keep the right kind of attitude. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying if you have your mindset right on the things of Christ, then that will begin to bleed out into the way that you live. So your mind kind of controls that whole body, ethical kind of way of life that, that we're talking about. So have the mind of Christ formed in you. Again, we're trying to learn to think and act like Jesus. And so Paul goes on to describe all of that. Like, what is what does the mind of Christ look like? Well, in the next few verses, he talks about sacrificial service, and he talks about humility, and he talks about honoring God rather than, than reaching for equality with God. And so Paul's point is that this kind of mind that was in Jesus should be ours in the present. How would it transform your world if you were to begin to think along the lines of Jesus? Like, what would my relationships be like if instead of having my mindset and remembering all the thing, you know, all the water under the bridge between me and you and her and him, and, you know, if instead I try to have the mind of Christ, how would that, what would that do to my relationships? What would that do to my relationship with my coworkers or my family members? How would the gospel come alive in my neighborhood? How about that? If I began to have the very mind of Christ. So again, like in discipleship, we're renouncing the image of the world that the powers and the principalities and the evil one is trying to form in us. We're not trying to think and act like them anymore. We're trying to think and act more like Jesus. But that's where Satan will camp out. He'll get you to think, okay, you start following Jesus, you start trying to have the mind of Jesus formed in you, here's one of the first things that Satan will do to you. I know because he does it to me, and I know he does it to several of you. He will try to convince you that the mind of Christ, again, is just kind of like that spiritual mindset, but it has no real use in the real world. So, so Jesus will tell you, hey, love your enemies and pray for them. When people persecute you and they slap you in the face, man, turn around and say, hey, hit me again. That's what Jesus will say to you, you know? And the world looks at that and they say, like, are you crazy? What would happen if everybody did that? Satan will tell you, that's no way to get along in the real world. And it'll get us thinking that Jesus doesn't know a whole lot about the real world. Jesus knows about the spiritual world, so you listen to Jesus about spiritual stuff. But it gets down to like the nitty-gritty of like the real world. You don't listen to Jesus. Look what the real world did to him. And we, what's revealed then to us is that we're living out of an altogether different mindset. We're not living out of the mind of Christ that's formed in us today. No. We're living out of a completely different mindset. And that's idolatry. Plain and simple. He says we can have the mind of Christ formed in us now. Present tense. But it's not just the mind of Christ that he says can be formed in us. Paul says, God says, 
have the entire character of Christ, put on Christ, he says. And that's what he says in this 10th verse, Galatians 3, 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In baptism, we've renounced our former identities. That's what happened when you and I went down into the water. I don't know if anybody told you that when you went down into the water. I don't know if anybody told me that when I went down into the water, but that's what we were doing. We were renouncing these former identities, and Paul lists a couple there, you know. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. We'd come up with a hundred more. But we renounced all of those when we went down into the water, and the punchline is where it really counts. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's because we've been united in baptism. Because baptism doesn't tell a million different stories. It tells one story. It tells the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And our million different stories all come together in that one story when we've been united in baptism. We say, look, my story is X, Y, Z. Yours is one, two, three. But in Jesus, we've all come to the same story because now we've all renounced those former identities and received what he has to give. We've now received life on the other side of death because that's the story of Jesus. And that's what we associate with when we go down under that water and we come back up. We're saying the story of Jesus when he went down into the grave and came back up. That's our story now. And so Paul says we're renouncing all these former identities. That's how the mind of Christ is formed in us. The mind of Christ is formed in us because we were saying, okay, I'm no longer those things. First and foremost, my primary way of thinking to myself isn't this, 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 or this. It's someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, praise God. And your worship just flows out of that. You don't have to get fired up to worship the Lord when you live with a new identity and you know who you are and you know who you were. You know, the, the, like the destination of where you were headed. And now, thankfully, God came alive. I once was lost in sin. What's the next line? But Jesus, right? And, and we all have that but Jesus moment that transforms and changes everything. So that's why Paul says, hey, put on Christ. Just like you went down into that water and you came back up. You put on that water because that water represents Jesus. So you put on Christ in baptism. And long before Paul was even talking about this, Jesus was teaching the same sort of thing. This is number 11, okay? Matthew 12, verse 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Now you read the context later on today of Matthew 12, you'll see the primary thing Jesus is doing, he's He's dealing with the Pharisees, and he's talking to these guys. He's responding to them. They've seen his teaching, okay? They've seen his miracles, but instead of recognizing him as Israel's Messiah, they've committed that unpardonable sin of rejecting him as Israel's leaders, okay? They've rejected him, and they have said he doesn't act by the power of God. They say he's possessed by a demon, and that's a game changer. Once they cross that line, Jesus, his interactions with the Pharisees from that point on, it's different. It's nothing but judgment language. And that judgment comes to a head ultimately in AD 70 when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, okay? So that's, kind of, that's like the primary context, and you'll, you'll see that. But this specific point that has to do with the Pharisees, okay, we can apply it to us. Jesus says to these Pharisees, hey, you'll, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And those Pharisees, they're not producing fruit in keeping with repentance, they're producing fruit in keeping with self-righteousness. 
And that's how that passage fits in for us today, okay? This is the point of all of that. I want to be sure you hear this. Jesus said that the trees of our lives can be made good. I don't know if you're struggling with something today and you're thinking, you know, like, what I've done, I've produced a whole lot of bad fruit in my life. Okay, welcome to the club, all right? But Jesus is saying, through what he's doing and what, what he's proclaiming, what he's preaching, the trees of our lives can become good trees. They can bear good fruit, okay? How does that happen? Through the power of God's Holy Spirit alive in you. Number 12, Galatians 5 talks about this. But the fruit of the Spirit, you can read it all there, love, joy, peace, all these things. And he says, against these things, there's no law. There's no law against this. <laughs> so live that way. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, Paul says, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, all the things that are listed here, okay? And this is the key point. This is how it just ties back in. I know you may be getting lost. We're like drinking out of a you know, fire hydrant here. I get it, Okay. But connect the dots, all right? This, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what the image of God looks like. This is what God has wanted to produce in our lives all along. The Spirit cultivates that and nurtures that and grows this in us as we continue to walk with Jesus. Because those are the qualities that Jesus has in spades. Those are the things that Jesus perfectly and abundantly embodies he is the epitome of love he's the epitome of self-control when they were nailing him to the tree you know what he was saying father forgive them they don't they don't get it he'd rather die he'd rather die and get even he bears that fruit the Holy Spirit is a key part of this. The Holy Spirit lives within us to produce this kind of fruit in us, this demonstrably Christ-like life that is produced. And Paul constantly reminds us that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Last verse, and then we wrap up. 2 Corinthians 3. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's agent of transformation. He works to produce that fruit in us. He works to produce sanctification in us. Another way of just saying it, he produces God's holy character in us. Again, both Old Testament and New Testament God says, be holy, therefore, as I am holy. So the key to all that is giving control of our lives to another. And when the Spirit comes alive within us, it begins to produce this kind of fruit. It begins to change us in the present, just as surely as we will be changed on that day. And notice again, the callback here to what we discussed last week. Discipleship is being changed to think and act like Jesus. So, Back to our original question, we've got this blank here staring at us, all right? What goes in the blank? What is the goal of discipleship? I think all these verses kind of come together to help us. If we one word to kind of summarize all of this, it would be this. Christ-likeness is the goal of discipleship. 
all this that we're talking about here, the reason that we, we care so much about this, the reason that you find so much in the New Testament that speaks to this is because this has always been God's goal for the people who bear his image to look like, to look like Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Bonus verse for you, number 14, all right? Now, he's the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know what the image of God really is, we look to Jesus. He's our master, our savior, our redeemer. He is our example. He is the divine pattern. Being a disciple of Jesus, it's about, it's about knowing him, it's about trusting him, and it's about following him so that we can look like him. So the question is, do, do you want to be like Jesus? You want to look like him. Uh, have you trusted him? And are you following him? If not, um, I think you need to know that the life of discipleship is not the easiest life you can live. Uh, Jesus is pretty honest about that. He says we ought to count the cost because it's challenging. We may not be up for it sometimes, and Jesus is honest about that, and I love him for it. But he also says this, that, that following him is, is the key to transformation. It's the key to new creation, Jesus says. So I have to ask, are you tired of the version of yourself? The version of yourself who's enslaved to sin? version of yourself who's enslaved to, to, to selfishness? Are, are you tired of living a fake life? Instead of living the way you were created to live in the image and likeness of God. If you are tired of that, tired of that fake life, tired of this version of yourself, I pray that you would respond to him today, that you would come and receive what only he has to offer. For it is given in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign Lord, who makes all things new. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's stand and sing.